Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Welcome to episode 156. This is Mike, and I'm flying solo today because Wendy's enjoying herself a nice vacation, but she definitely hit some haunted spots, and I'm looking forward to hearing her stories when she comes back for next week's episode. Anyway, while she was gone, Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts and I decided to tackle one of our favorite subjects again, and that's poltergeists. So we have author Jenny Ashford with us today to discuss her four different books on poltergeist phenomena. Let's take a listen. Jenny Ashford is an accomplished horror fiction author and graphic artist, but we're talking to her today because of her unparalleled work on one of our favorite subjects, poltergeists. She's written several books on the subject, including her latest, The Unseen Hand, a new exploration of poltergeist phenomena. Also joining us today is Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts, because she just loves poltergeists too. Thank you for joining. See you on the other side today, guys. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. And I'm glad to be talking to Jenny. Yes, Jenny. Number one, uh, let's get a little context for you. Uh, Where are you from? I am from Central Florida. I was born in Daytona Beach, but I live in Orlando now. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's like the real life Freaky Links. That's kind of a deep cut. That is a deep Freaky Links. Many people don't remember that, but I I always want to. Be, be in, involved in Freaky Link, so. Yeah, the fourth the fourth greatest paranormal show of 1998. <laughs> Come on. Okay, so Jenny, you're a Floridian, and yes. we'd like to just get started with saying, hey, how did you get involved in this? The first thing you want to say, because most people, uh, when you talk to them about you know weird stuff, that it's not the first thing, like, the, me, that's the first thing I come across. Like, I'm totally into weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But... You know, a lot of people are sometimes reticent about it. So it does take a leap of faith to get involved. So how did you get involved in being a weirdo? Um, well, gosh, I think I was born a weirdo, really. But I mean, <laughs> I was a, ever since I was a little kid, the only thing I remember is like, oh, I love ghost stories. I love witches. I love all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, as I got older, I kind of got more into, you know, I got into the gothic subculture. I got into all that kind of stuff. And I started writing horror stories when I was really young. and it was kind of all I ever wanted to do was just write horror, especially I was super Ooh. into Stephen King. I was super into Clive Barker and it was like, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I was kind of into the paranormal stuff too. Like I was interested in ghost stories. I was interested in poltergeists. I didn't know if I really believed it cause I'm kind of skeptical about a lot of it, but it was something that I found interesting from a scientific point of view, particularly poltergeist. I was like, you know, if this stuff is really going on, you know, maybe it's some kind of scientific thing that we don't understand yet. And that would be sure. really cool. And so I read a lot of books um, about that when I was a teenager. And then I kind of, you know, went mo- off more into the horror thing. And then I met um, my current boyfriend, Tom Ross, about seven, eight years ago. And he told me, we had been together for about a year or two. And he's like, you know, when I was 13, I had a really bad uh, poltergeist. You know, he was the focus of like a poltergeist outbreak. And it was really um, upsetting. (laughs) And he told me about it. And I was like, that is the craziest thing I've ever, I'm like, did that really happen? He's like, yeah, I swear it really happened. And how does that come up in a conversation? I mean, were you guys like in the middle of a game of Vampire the Masquerade or something like that? And he's like, did I, did I, I just love the deep cut right there. Oh, I, hey, I used, to, I used to live action role play Vampire the Masquerade. I remember Vampire the Masquerade. I remember that, totally. I've lived in the goth subculture too. Um, but how does that come up in like in a discussion? Like, were you watching the movie Poltergeist or The Haunting? You know or what? Like- I don't even remember. It might have been. We might have been like watching a horror movie or something. Oh, you know what it was? He said, because I'm super into horror movies and, you know, horror novels Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And we were talking about horror in general. And he was like, oh, you know, I like some of it, but I don't really like a lot of it because he's like, I've seen the real thing. 
So the movies and stuff don't really scare me. And so that and so I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I don't think you're going to believe me because he knew like how skeptical I was. And I'm like, you know, try me seriously. So he told me this and I was like, I, you're right. I don't know if I believe you. I'm like, that is a crazy story. And he's like, no, for real. He's like, it didn't just happen to me. He's like, I was with my aunt and uncle and my cousin at the time. He's like, seriously, call them. They live in California and talk to them on the phone without me around and ask them about it. And they will tell you the same thing that I told you all the same details and everything. So I was like, all right, you're on. So I called them and talked to them on the phone and they told me the exact same story. They said this happened and this happened and this happened. And I was like, wow, maybe there's like something to this. And then we kind of talked about it a lot over the ensuing years. That's all I would talk about. Yeah. And it's like, we talked about it all the time because he has like a lot of theories about what he thought caused it and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, um, I was like, I'm a horror fiction writer, but I was like, do you, would you mind if I wrote like a nonfiction book about it? Like, would you be mad? And he's like, no, we'll collaborate on it. We'll write a book. It'll be neat. So that was my first paranormal nonfiction was Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, which was about his case. And it was totally taken from his account and his aunt and uncle and his cousin's accounts. They sent me pictures that they took. Um, they sent me like a written thing of everything that happened there. And um, I just made like a short book out of that. And it was interesting because after that happened, um, Tom started getting into like he got more interested in it because he had got, I mean, it happened when he was 13 in the 80s. So he had kind of, you know, put it behind him mostly. But the more we started talking about the book and everything, he's like, you know, I I want to find other people who have experienced this kind of thing and talk to them. And I want to talk to parapsychologists about it and all this other kind of stuff. So on um, I believe it was on Facebook, he contacted um, parapsychologist Steve Mara, who is, you know, he's British and he's kind of well known in uh, Britain. He's on TV over there and stuff. Hello. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He talks just like that. He's from Manchester. Right. That's how you do it. Yeah. And um, so Tom started talking to him and they became friends. And then we all became friends. And and Steve was like, you know, I, I have a bunch of cases that were really interesting that I investigated. And I don't really have time to, you know, write them in book form. He's like, do you want to, like, collaborate on a couple of books about some cases that I did? And I was like, sure. So then, you know, we collaborated on one, uh, the Rochdale Poltergeist that took place in 1996. And then he came over here last year and investigated the uh, Keith Linder haunting, the demons in Seattle. It was on Ghost Adventures. And, um, you know, after Keith Linder was on Ghost Adventures, where Ghost Adventures were like, we didn't find anything and we think that they're full of crap. And so... Keith Linder, oh, apparently. Oh, oh, Zach said that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the bastion of paranormal reliability, Zach Baggins? No. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. go on. So he thought nothing happened. And so Keith Linder, the guy whose house it was, was like, you know, there's really something here going on. And he's like, I, and and apparently after he was kind of brushed off on Ghost Adventures, like he got like a lot of, um, not death threats, but, you know, people were like emailing him and calling him like prank calling him and stuff and his girlfriend left him and, and all this other oh, kind of his stuff. girlfriend left and that's the, ah. it's, did she leave him for zach baggins <laughs> you don't even you don't even lift keith you don't even lift <laughs> it's oh funny because keith is a very large he's a very large guy he's like a football player but yeah well she left because of all the negative publicity about him she's like i sure. can't really take it anymore i don't want anything to do with this and so oh, she took man. off And then, so Keith Linder was like, well, I need, you know, somebody that's like a legitimate parapsychologist to come and, you know, say that something is really happening here. He's like, because people are breaking me over the coals. And so Steve Mara, you know, he's in Britain and he's like, well, I have to go all the way to Seattle and it's expensive and stuff like that. But he initially thought that maybe Keith Linder was exaggerating, but... When he did come over here with Don Phillips, who's um, kind of a sensitive, and they came over and they actually got a, a lot of the poltergeist activity had diminished by that point, but they did get a lot of evidence like, that they recorded. And they actually came back two times, but they mostly got like a lot of EVPs. It was very strange. Like they didn't hear anything while they were recording, but when they got back to England and played all the tapes back, they're like, there were all these voices on there, like a bunch of different ones. Now, real quick about the EVPs there. And I've, so to me, is it EVPs like in conjunction with a, 
Oculus or I don't know, isn't that or a Spirit Box or something, or just EVPs like they were straight up, like straight up to a um, a recording. That I'm always interested in that because sometimes I think I don't. Not that anything here is cheating when we're talking about this about the invisible <laughs> world, but uh, so what kind of EVPs were they? Um, there were several different ones. They were captured on many different devices, recording devices, cameras, audio recording, all of that kind of stuff. And the weird thing was that a lot of them seemed interactive. Like they didn't hear them at the time, but they heard them later. Like I said, like one example, Don Phillips, he, um, he crawled underneath the house. There was like a crawl space underneath the house. And so he went down there to kind of investigate it because they were checking the house from top to bottom. My hero. Yeah, right. And so he's he's crawling down in the hole and he didn't hear or see anything while he was down there. But when they listened to the tape that he made back, there was a man's voice on the tape and it said, clear as a bell, because I've heard it. It's a long house. Almost as it was like commenting on what he was doing. Fair enough. Yeah. And he also he had actually bought some flowers to put in the house and he put them in a vase and later on, they had a bunch of, um, you know, they they had cameras and audio recording equipment going pretty much the whole time because they were staying at the house and they stayed there for eight days the first time, I think, and six days the second time. And so these flowers were on the landing. And when they played a tape back that they had recorded around that time, there were two women's voices. And one of them said, whose are the flowers? And the other voice said, that man bought them. So it's almost like they were watching them. And these were not like EVPs, like the McDonald's drive-thru speaker. Like it's like, they weren't like (laughs) that. They were like, they sounded like real voices. And no one was there other than the two parapsychologists and Keith Linder. There were no women in the house. So it was very strange that a lot of the voices were women. A lot of them had Irish accents too, unusually. Wow. Well, what I'm interested in here is, okay, so first of all, we're going to get back to your boyfriend's poltergeist because that i'm interested in too uh so i can't forget that but i want to get at here with keith linder let's give people a little bit of context in case they don't know too much about it and i assume that some of this stuff is in your new unseen handbook yeah there is i've written a whole book about the keith linder case or at least about steve mara's involvement in it because i got it from his notes um you know, but I described what Keith Linder said happened before the parapsychologist got there, but I'm not making any uh, right. claims over whether that really happened or not. I'm just going by what Steve Mara saw and what he recorded. So what's a little bit of the background to Keith Linder so people can kind of get that set up when they think about these parapsychologists crawling around the house and stuff? Yeah, well, basically, I mean, he lived in a house in Seattle. The house was only 10 years old um, and only a couple people had lived in it beforehand. I don't think, um, I think the person that lived there before had also reported some minor paranormal activity. So they're not really sure if it was a poltergeist or if it was an interactive haunting or something, because it seemed to have aspects of both. But apparently Keith moved in with his girlfriend, Tina, in, I believe it was 2014. And they said that paranormal activity started pretty much immediately. They said the first day they were there, they heard, um, a little girl, coughing upstairs. And after that, they started having a lot of weird, just weird noises. Things were moving. Uh, they saw plants levitating, uh, bowls levitating, and they had a couple incidents of, uh, spontaneous outbreaks of fire, usually in Bibles. Keith had a collection of Bibles. He collected old Bibles and, um, he would find that actually the most dramatic was the the fire alarm went off in the middle of the night and he and Tina got up like, you know, and they smelled smoke and they opened the bedroom door and there was a Bible laying on the floor in front of the bedroom door and was open and it was burning. It was on fire. Was it open to a certain page or anything like that? You know what? Like? I don't know. I didn't ask him. Like I said, I didn't know if it was open to like some significant. Right. Like, <laughs> so. like this poltergeist super hates Leviticus, man. Yeah. So we have to rip those pages out. I was just burn it up. Yeah. It might have been. It might have been. But he also had really strange things happen, like apportations, like things would appear in his house that weren't his. Like one time it was a, a wine encyclopedia. A couple times it was like kids toys. They didn't have any kids. They would just appear in the middle of the floor and they didn't know where they came from. Oh man, that's a real opportunity that was missed there. You could have your own ghostly personal shopper. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) You just kind of ask it and then maybe the next day it'll turn up in the house. It's like, wow. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. So this kind of brings me to the question. So so in the past, we, we've spoken to um, author Jeff Holder about his book, Poltergeist Over Scotland. And he taught us that there have been many varied interpretations of the poltergeist phenomena through the ages, like demons, fairies, ghosts, human agents. And I just want to know, like, what is your take? I mean, we, we should define poltergeist for people. What? How would you define it? I definitely think that it's something to do with a human agent. So in that sense, I don't think it's supernatural, quote unquote, in that it's outside of the natural realm. I think that it's a person producing something that seems like an entity. It's almost like a like an outward manifestation of like a temper tantrum that is somehow I'm not sure like what the science would be, how it would be engineered um, that a person's emotional state can cause things to happen outside of their body. But I tend to think that that's probably what it is. So in that way, like I said, I'm pretty skeptical about hauntings, you know, like about a ghost of a dead person. So I don't think poltergeist activity is caused by that. But I do think that poltergeists are caused by living people. And I do think that they can mimic a more, you know, a more haunting or ghost type phenomenon or even a demon type phenomenon. And I think that that might have something to do with the person's expectations as well, like what they expect that it's going to act like. And that's why in my new book, The Unseen Hand, where I, you know, compiled a whole bunch of cases throughout history, I even put the final um, section in there is demon possession. Because I feel like if you believe that this thing is a demon, then it will act like a demon because it's you generating it, even though you're not aware of it, like unconsciously. And like I said, I kind of came to believe this because, I mean, I've sort of believed it before because it seems like most of the parapsychologists are kind of of the opinion that that's what's causing it, that this is a living person generating this kind of energy. But I kind of came to that, like I said, mostly talking with Tom because what was significant about his poltergeist case was that it was so severe when he thought it was an outside entity. But as soon as he figured out, this is me doing it, it stopped. So, so he's like, so I came to, so I definitely came to believe that it was him. And it's funny because many years later in the house we live in now, and you know, he's in his forties now. Um, we had poltergeist activity start again here, very minor. And it's weird because I'd always wanted to see it. And he was like, I always wanted you to see it, you know, cause I didn't know him back then. And I did get to see it. Like I said, very minor, but it's not scary because I really believe it's him doing it, but he has to be in a certain state of mind. Like he has to not be aware of what's going, like he has to be kind of spaced out. What's an example of, of the, the minor poltergeist activity that you've had around your house? And is this recently or in like the past couple of years or something like that? Or like yeah, what happened? It was, it was probably like, oh gosh, six months to a year ago. And it's weird because we hadn't had any. I mean, we talked about the, been talking about the book a lot and stuff like that. It so happened that I remember the first time it happened, it was a Sunday night. Me and Tom were here. His mom was here. And two of our friends were here. And we were trying to watch a movie on our pay-per-view and we couldn't get it to work and all this other stuff. And Tom's mom was like, well, I'll call customer service and see what's going on and everything. So she's on the phone. We're all sitting on, me and Tom are sitting on one couch and our friends were sitting on the other couch. And all of a sudden the remote control uh, that was on the coffee table, it suddenly picked itself up and flew off the floor you know, it flew through the air and it fell to the floor with a really loud bang. Like it was like a brick or something, even though it's just a little plastic thing that weighs a couple of ounces. And what kind of flooring did it fall on? It's carpet. Mm. Yeah. So it sounded like a brick, even though it's a little flimsy plastic thing. Yeah. Like you would imagine a controller would be like everybody's familiar with. Yeah. And, and it's on carpet and it sounded like a brick hit the, hit the floor. Wow. And it didn't bounce because of course, once we, well, First thing was we all sat there. Like I looked at it and I was like, oh, maybe someone kicked the table, even though no one was close enough to kick the table. And there was other stuff on the table and nothing else had moved. 
And so I looked across at my friends. I was like, did you guys just see that? And they were looking at me and their eyes were like huge. <laughs> and they were just like, they're yeah, like, that's what just, did you do? They just, they're like, that's <laughs> you opened a portal, itself. didn't you? Right. I was like, oops, my bad. But uh, yeah. So then I turned to Tom and he was kind of spaced out because he was mad about the movie not starting. And I was like, did you do that? And he's and he looks and he's like, oh, I guess like like he's like, yeah, I guess I kind of did that. He's like, I wasn't really thinking about it. And he's like, and I only saw it move out of my peripheral vision. And his mom was across the room and she was looking at me like that, like, what the hell? You know what I mean? (laughs) And so then we went and like, like, okay, we got to be scientific about this, right? So we pick up the remote control and I'm like, okay, now drop it from that height. And he dropped it and it goes click and it bounced. I was like, okay, that's not what happened. I was like, it flew. It was like a trajectory and it went like an arc. wham. Yeah. It was almost like, um, I want to say it was almost like it, there was a magnet underneath that was like sucking it because it didn't bounce or anything. It just went, you know what I mean? And it just hit the ground. And I was like, that is the weirdest thing. And Tom's like, oh, you guess you've seen it. You know, I was like, that was it. Wow. And I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. And then his friends were like, do it again, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it doesn't then, really work that way, does no, it? No, it doesn't. And Tom's like, no, no, no. He's like, I don't. He's not an he's Avenger. Like, well, what I'm interested like in is Darn. you were saying that his mother was in town. And then most of the stuff happened when he was 13. Like, there's something in, in Allison and my mother that brings out Ooh, the poltergeist yeah. in me. Uh, <laughs> could it be, you know, could his mother, like a... Be a trigger. Yeah, be a trigger. It could be. I mean, she, well, the, another thing that happened and I actually was at work when, uh, when this happened, but they took, they both told me about it. And there were a couple other people here too, that were friends of his mom's and him and his mom had had an argument and then he was kind of mad. So he like went off in our bedroom and then all of a sudden in the kitchen, there was this huge crash. And he runs in there and his mom runs in from the other side of the house and her two friends ran in. And what had happened was we have um, over our stove, we have like a set of cabinets and then there's like a shelf on top. And there was like a bunch of statues up there, like little ceramic statues. Two of those statues in the middle had flown off and shattered all over the floor. And the little lip on the shelf had been wrenched off. Like it was nailed on there. And it was like, it was hanging off and it was broken. And Tom sitting there going, there's, he's like, that couldn't have happened. And he's like, if those had just fallen off, which they wouldn't because they were way back toward the back wall. He's like, if those had just fallen off, they would have fallen right on the stove, but they went out about seven feet, like in the middle of the kitchen floor and broke. And he said, you know, that he said that was probably because I was mad at my mom. Like we had just had a fight and then he just went off in the other room and then bam, like all of the stuff. I have to ask you this because I had a, a an experience with objects flying. Uh, you know, I don't think it was a poltergeist. I think it was like a straight up haunting. But um, so I was just uh, at a popular haunted spot, which has been closed now for a number of years. And there was a tray of of drinking glasses up on a high level surface. And of course, you know, I was there. I had a great meal and then went to the uh, bar to talk to the bartender because those are the guys that hold on to the stories for a place. And this place had decades of stories. So I proceeded in trying to collect some of those new stories. And as we were talking, it was across the room for me that this tray of drinking glasses flew off. And then it did seem like, again, I'm not, wasn't looking right at it because, you know, I'm talking to somebody. So I'm looking at him in the eye and I didn't expect anything to happen. So I'm not looking over there, but I had noticed it earlier. And, uh, but the way it landed, it seemed like it was an arc. It did, it didn't like fall straight down or, you know, just a little bit off of where it had been. It was in the middle of the floor. This was like 17 years ago. So I didn't have a phone or anything, you know, I didn't have anything to take pictures, but what I wish it would have, would have done is had a meter tape with me and I always carry one now <laughs> in my purse <laughs> like uh, you do. in case that <laughs> will happen again because what I could have done is measured where it started from and where it ended up and then I could have had somebody help me with the math to figure out how much force it took to get where it got it got to and then it would be obvious whether that force could have come about naturally or not so I just wanted to tell you that and make that suggestion that if that happens again, take yeah, some measurements. We and probably then send should. them to me. Next time Tom <laughs> fights with his mom, grab the meter tape immediately. 
you might need it. Be like, holy crap, let me get to the utility room. Tom, don't yell at her in a second. So we we should say too that that poltergeist. I, I think everybody by now probably knows the word means noisy ghost, and it comes from German, uh, and uh, it comes from the German. And uh, but most people don't know that it was that word was actually brought into English usage in 1848 by another awesome female researcher, just like you, Jenny, named <laughs> Catherine Crow. So we have to give her, her her props because that was way back in 1848. Nobody remembers, but we will very soon. Uh, anyway, so poltergeist, uh, that's, that's like, you know, lots of people now believe that it's a human agent. That seems to be in fashion as uh, the interpretation. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, like, how many cases have you been involved in, Jenny? Now, really, I don't, other than um, the cases that I worked with Steve Mara on, I don't go out like into fields and investigate. And other than Tom's case, which I kind of saw up close and personal, right? Um, you know, I generally don't go out and investigate. I usually just research cases that have already happened or talk with parapsychologists about their various cases and just kind of compile them. And like I said, other than you know, the, the poltergeist activity that took place here that I think Tom was responsible for. I have actually never seen any other poltergeist activity. I've never seen any haunting activity that I know of. Um, the house that I spent some of my childhood in, which was my grandfather's house was supposedly haunted. All my, my mom and all her siblings had grown up there and they all reported that their covers had been torn off, that they heard footsteps walking around on the roof all the time and stuff like that. And I was always hoping that I would see something or hear something. And I never did. And I was always really disappointed. And now the house is torn down. So it's not like I can go oh, and man. Yeah, but it was no. torn down by Bigfoot's. It, maybe it was. <laughs> it came so, out of the woods and so just finally, stomped it into the so ground. So it finally uh, happened. It's sad. There's uh, a frat house there now. So, <laughs> so how many cases did you cover in your most recent book? I mean, I, I read it. It's awesome. There's like loads of cases in there. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> loads. Yeah. It was, it was actually when I first kind of conceived of the project, because before that I had just written three kind of short books that just focused on one case. And then... Uh, I was thinking, you know, I said, I'd kind of like to do some of like the old school compilation books like William Roll used to do. And that because yeah. I said, I loved those when I was growing up. And I said, I really haven't seen a lot of those recently. There's a lot of compilations of ghost stories and stuff like that, but not so much that just focus on poltergeist. So I said, well, I'm going to do one. And my initial outline, I had 50 cases that I was going to do, including a lot of the more well-known ones like Enfield and stuff like that. And then a few more obscure ones. But I found out as I was researching, every time I would research one kind of well-known case, I would find like 10 other ones <laughs> that I had never heard of. And I was like, Jackpot. oh man, I have to put this in there and I have to put this in there. That's so cool. And so I ended up like having 115 cases or something wow. like that. It was like wow. way way more than like twice what I originally intended. But, uh, you know, and, and honestly, I, since I've written the book, I've gotten a couple of messages that were like, Oh, how about this case? Or how about this one? And I was like, Oh man, I forgot that one. So now I have to probably have to do a volume two at some stage. Yeah, please and, do. Uh, yeah, I probably will have to. You know, a, a couple of things. Num number one, I wanted to get to what do you think of the famous cases? Because I know you, you said you t talk about the Bell Witch and things like that in the book. Um, yeah. Of the famous cases, what did you learn when you were researching that maybe you didn't learn know before or that most surprised you? Or that you feel like, oh my God, I um, people haven't talked about this in this particular case, so I can't wait to do it. Was there any instances in the book or in your research where you found something where you were surprised or shocked even? Um, I think probably... Like I said, I think one of my most um, one of my most favorite cases was the Enfield case, and I think that especially now since there have been a bunch of movies made about it, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what actually happened there and who was involved and various other things. And I ended up, you know, for my research, I read uh, Guy Lyon Playfair's book. This house is haunted. And he was actually there for most of the uh, 18 months that the phenomena went on. And 
his book was very, it was, uh, it was actually kind of a model for my own books because I liked the way it was so matter of fact, and he didn't exaggerate anything. He was just like this day and this happened and this happened. And he didn't really try to explain it or anything. He was just documenting what had happened. And between that and um, also Morris Gross, who was the other uh, investigator, I kind of feel like that is probably the best attested case. And it would make me sad if people would go see like The Conjuring 2 or would see um, the BBC miniseries that they made that, that was called The Enfield Haunting that was based on it, which was pretty good, although I thought the third part was kind of wildly exaggerated. But it would make me sad if people thought that the case was fake because they thought it happened like it happened in the movies. And it didn't really happen anything like that. I mean, most of the manifestations were fairly minor. And Janet and Margaret, the the two girls, they were caught faking on one or two occasions, which kind of made a lot of skeptics say, well, they were faking all of the phenomena then. But there was so much phenomena. I mean, like I said, Morris Gross, Guy Lyon Playfair, and, you know, some other reporters and stuff were there all the time. And of course, the very truthful Ed and Lorraine Warren were there. Yeah, <laughs> and not. They wouldn't, they wouldn't for like to, a minute. They wouldn't have lied they, about yeah. anything. They turned up one day that everyone that was on the Enfield case that they turned up one day uninvited and were basically like, hey, maybe we can make a lot of money off this or whatever. And then the other people were like, yeah, no, get out. <laughs> and then they left. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was funny that they made The Conjuring too, like based like they were the main characters. It's like they I weren't know. even there. They just showed up and then left the same day. But, oh, yeah. yeah that you know, just. Oh, you know, th- trying to get to the truth in, in this field is just really, really difficult. It really is. Yeah, it is. And it's sad because, like I said, I'm very skeptical. Even a lot of the cases that I wrote about in the book, I don't know if they happened the way that people reported that they happened. Because, you know, people's memories can be faulty. People can see things and attribute it to other things. And, you know, so I tried to kind of keep... Uh, you know, editorializing to a minimum. So it was just kind of like, I didn't want to like go through the case and go, yeah, I don't think it happened like that, whatever. But, you know, because <laughs> right. I wasn't there. But, um, you know, a couple of the cases I did come out and say, this is probably a hoax. I mean, you know, Amityville is probably a hoax. A bunch of people that were involved in it came out later and said it was a hoax. And, uh, you know, things like that. I think the Cock Lane ghost and uh, the Fox sisters. Oh, yeah, the stuff Fox like sisters, that. totally. Yeah. What's the Cock Lane ghost? It happened in the 1700s in England. And it was this big convoluted thing where there was a guy and he um, he married his wife's sister. His wife died. And then he wanted to marry her sister. But there was some kind of law where you couldn't marry your sister-in-law, even though your wife was dead. I don't know. It was weird. But um, they moved into this he made house. Made his way through the family. Yeah, I guess so. He's like, hey, I like her too. Awesome. But um, yeah, so they moved into this house and tried not to tell anybody that they weren't married because that was like really a no-no back then. But the guy who uh, owned the property found out about it. And then he actually wanted to get back at this dude because of some kind of uh, money, like he had loaned him money or something like that. So he started getting his little daughter to knock on the walls with a piece of wood and say it was a ghost. And he got this ghost to say that this guy had killed his wife, that he had poisoned her. And a lot of people believed it. And, you know, he was going to get hanged. I mean, just because this this guy had his daughter like knocking on the walls and saying, yeah, she totally, you know, knocking out messages that this guy had killed his wife and and his uh, his girlfriend, the the wife's sister. She also died later, too. She had um, not tuberculosis, but something like that. And she died of that later. So, you know, this guy was like, yeah, I'll get back at this guy by having this ghost say that that he killed both his wives and all this other stuff. And there was like a big court case. And I mean, the guy uh, who was accused eventually got his name cleared. And the the guy that faked the ghost actually did go to prison for a little while and had to pay him a bunch of money. But but uh, for a while, they thought that the ghost was real. They even called the, they called the ghost Scratching Fanny because that was the name of the of the second uh, woman. And they said that she great, was sitting there saying, name. Scratching yeah. Fanny. Scratching, Scratching Fanny would be an awesome name for a band. 
It yeah, would, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, fraud and hoaxes, it, it's just so rampant. Um, and and I, I have investigators that I work with, and they, like, put poltergeists all down to, you know, fakery. And I've got a little bit of a problem with that. Uh, how would you feel about that? You know, because I do ha- have paranormal investigator friends who are, like, in their presentations, they're like, poltergeist, that's all fake. <laughs> Yeah. And it's bad because I think a lot of it probably is fake or maybe not fake in the sense that someone's deliberately trying to perpetrate a fraud, but maybe it's just, you know, misattribution and things like that. But because I think the real thing, and I do think the real thing exists, I just think it's really rare. So I think that a lot of cases that happen, maybe, you know, maybe not as much as is reported, you know what I mean? Like, so I feel like maybe it's kind of 70% of the cases are not, not necessarily fake, but just misattributions or like some kind of natural explanation that, that people didn't know, like, Oh, there was, you know, carbon monoxide poisoning or something like that, you know, going on in the house that was causing hallucinations or something. And it's bad because there's so much that you have to rule out before you can get to the bottom of this has to be paranormal because there are so many other things that it could be. So in that way, I I think it's kind of a shame that parapsychologists, you know, there aren't a lot of really serious scientifically based parapsychologists operating anymore, which is why I really kind of value my friendship with Steve Mara, because he's really like that old school kind of, we're going to go with all the tape measures and all the audio thing. And he, records everything very meticulously. And he is very quick to say, you know, this is fake. I don't think this is real. You know, this is what this was. But, you know, if he comes up with something inexplicable, he will say, this is probably paranormal. He never comes out and says, this is definitely paranormal. But he says, there is no known explanation for this particular piece of data. And I think that's really kind of the best way to be because there really is, like you said, there really is so much fakery and uh, misidentification and stuff in the field too, which is, like I said, that's what makes it such a shame because I do think there's some phenomena that Mm -hmm. needs to be explained, but it's, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff is very hard. So you think there is some there there, you know, it it shouldn't be just throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there's something there. But, yeah. you know, you understand why, you know, people might reject it. But to me, it's like, but look at how many cases there are going so back, so far back in history. Like you have 115 in yours. Um, Jeff Holder, who we talked to uh, on a previous episode, had uh, like a 134 uh, cases just in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, there were and, a lot in Scotland. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, so what what is the deal? I mean, I, and, you know, there's just so many things reported. And, like, Jeff Holder's point, too, was that that they're so weird. Like, the things that happen, you know, like, if you were going to make something up, you think you'd, I don't know, have a little bit, make, make a little bit more sense or have a little bit of more. Yeah, negative. exactly. I mean, that's that's kind of what sort of got me over from the skeptical side was was basically Tom telling about his poltergeist experience and the stuff that he said happened was just so strange and just so random. And I'm like, why would anybody make something like that up? Why would you even think of that? You know what I mean? Just the stuff that it did was so bizarre. It's obscure. Well, what's right. speaking yeah. of obscure, what's an obscure case that you think that you brought to light in your book that you haven't hadn't heard of before? And you were like, Oh my God, like the world needs to know. Like, <laughs> you know, what was something that was in the unseen hand that may have surprised you? Um, that you hadn't heard of before and you were excited to bring it out. It's funny because I hadn't, weirdly, even though Australia is an English-speaking country, it seemed like I hadn't heard of a lot of cases from Australia. And then I came across a book where these two paranormal investigators had just had all of these cases in, that had happened in Australia and I had never heard of any of them. And I was like, man, I got to put a couple of these in there too, because I didn't hear of any of the, any of these Australian ones. I think probably my favorite one out of that was the Humpty Doo case. Uh, and not just because that is a very silly name yes, for the, the dreaded Humpty Doo. Fanny <laughs> and the Humpty Doo. 
Scratching Fanny and the Humpty Doos. I'm going to go see I that know. band tonight. <laughs> I liked them before they were famous. So, you know, <laughs> right. I'm more. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so this Humpty Doo case, it actually, it's actually fairly recent. It happened in 1998. And it was a bunch of housemates. Um, it was two couples and one of their uh, one of their friends who was like a biker. I think his and his name was Murph. Yeah. And uh, yeah, <laughs> a biker named Murph and uh, in Humpty Doo. And uh, so and <laughs> you I and, make that stuff up. Uh, right. <laughs> that's what I, mean. I just I don't know. So they uh, they all lived together in a house. One of them had a um, one of the couples had a had a baby daughter. Now the first thing that started to happen was that they were all sitting out on the porch one evening, you know, drinking beers and hanging out like they did. And Bosses. all of a sudden, yeah. So like <laughs> all of a sudden, all these uh, rocks started flying at them from all different directions. And they were kind of like, uh, is somebody out there throwing rocks at us for some reason? What's going on? Because the rocks were the same as the rocks that made up their driveway. So they naturally assumed that someone was out there throwing rocks at them. So they went out and searched around, but they couldn't find anybody. And they're like, okay, that's weird. And then they went and sat back down and then the rocks came flying at them again. And they're just like, what the hell is going on? So they're like, well, finally they're like, okay, that's enough. And they went inside and then when they went inside, the rocks started falling on them inside the house. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're like, well, this is a little weird. Mm-hmm. And uh, they searched all around. They, they were coming out of the ceiling. It, they said it looked like the rocks were fairly small, but they said it looked like um, that they were kind of appearing up by the ceiling and then falling. Like but an this, airport. Yeah. So they still, they went up to the attic and searched around and stuff like that. There's nothing up there. And they said, even though it was raining outside, the rocks inside were dry. So it's like, they obviously didn't come from outside because they weren't wet. And so then other things in the house started moving around, like a couple mattresses came flying off, like some of their appliances, CD player, that kind of thing. And then they started hearing, yeah, (laughs) the dingoes ate my baby. (laughs) <laughs> but uh yeah it they, it did actually but um yeah so then they started <laughs> sadly enough but yeah so then uh they started hearing like scratching in the walls and stuff which is very commonly reported and uh so then they started calling they didn't really know what else to do so they said well let's start calling in the priests you know because that's what you do so they called in a priest he came from darwin nearby and uh he's like well i can't really do an exorcism and yada yada he's like but i'll do a binding ritual which will ensure that whatever is in the house can't hurt anyone. Um, but apparently whatever was in the house didn't really take too kindly with that because there was, there had been a knife sitting on top of the, <clears throat> excuse me, on top of the microwave and it came flying at him. Although it didn't, it didn't hit him, but like it came close and then dropped to his feet. So it's almost kind of like a threat, you know. Ghostly warning shot. Yeah. So, you know, so <laughs> that priest was like, well, okay, I've done all I can. Bye. And um, his, him being there did seem to help a little bit. I think for the next couple of days, uh, the phenomena died down somewhat. Uh, but then it started coming back and the stuff started moving around again. And so they got a different priest to come. And he reported that when he got came in the house... He's like, there were bottles flying around. There were bullets flying around, like, you know, just random bullets, not out of a gun or anything like that. And um, he said they they went around corners and stuff like that. He's like defying physics, the stuff that was flying around. So he gave um, a blessing to the house. He left them a Bible and a crucifix and stuff like that. And he really, he hadn't got too far off the property before there was the bottle of holy water that he left just smashed all over the floor. So then they called another priest uh, who was a Greek Orthodox and he didn't even get into the, he didn't even finish the blessing before that something tried to like pull the Bible out of his hands and was like twisting his arm behind his back and stuff like that. So then, yeah. So then, and this was the weirdest part. Then whatever was in the house started speaking spelling things uh it would take these little pebbles that were from out in the driveway and it would make letters and they said that the way they did it they said the letters i've seen the pictures of them 
the letters are very clear. And they said often these words would appear on the floor in seconds. Like you would just, you would walk through the hall and then you would come back through the hall a couple seconds later and there would be a word there. There's like, there's no way that a human being could have arranged these, you know, these words with the, all these little rocks in a second. And the creepiest thing was that a lot of the words, they didn't, uh, on their face, they didn't really appear to make any sense. They, one of the words was fire. One of them was Troy and things like that. But the weird thing is that shortly before the poltergeist activity started, their friend Troy had been killed in a car accident. His car, he had hit something and the car had caught fire and he had burned to death. So, so they thought, oh, well, the poltergeist is commenting on, I, they didn't think that, um, that it was caused by the, by their friend, like the ghost of their friend, even though a lot of the manifestations seemed to relate to him. They thought that they said, well, because, you know, our friend Troy wouldn't do that. It's like, why would he scare us like that? And that's creepy. Throw a knife they, at a priest. Like, right. Exactly. They're like, <laughs> Troy was a jerk when he was, he was nice drunk, guy. but he didn't try to stab priests. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now he's like right all over our floor with rocks. Wow. But you know what I mean? So, um, so I thought that was kind of interesting that they didn't immediately jump to, oh, it's Troy's ghost. They said, oh, well, it's a poltergeist and it's using that, you know, it's using Troy's death to upset us. Mm. So oh, yeah. so they were actually, you know, um, astute enough to come to that conclusion. But uh, there were other things, too, like it, sometimes it would make like little trident shapes and stuff like that. Um, and like I said, it spelled words like help and stuff. But um did it ever spell Humpty Do? Like it did not. <laughs> I mean, are are we Wouldn't gonna get to why awesome they're calling it Humpty Do? Oh, uh, you know what? I don't know why. Isn't, it, like, isn't that just the place where they yeah. were? Or yeah, yeah. Oh, that yeah. was the name that of the was, town. That, that was the name, the name of the, of the town. town. That was the name oh of the town. Oh my god, they need they need more things to do in Australia, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Australia really has the best town names. They're so rad. <laughs> so, so I wanted to ask you, like, when I was reading the Unseen Hand, I mean, it's just awesome. I have the, I have the Kindle, I have the Audible, and I'm gonna have to get the print copy, which I'm gonna have to get you to sign at some point, okay. um, because I just think it's such a valuable like reference book of like how you categorized it by uh, the different types of manifestation. Could you talk a little bit about that and why, why you decided to do that? Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, and I'm really glad that you said that it was like a reference because that's really what yeah. I wanted. What, you know, out of this, I was like, because I wanted something. I was like, if you're interested in Poltergeist, here's like a one-stop shop kind of book where you can just read about most of the cases and, you know, uh, theories about what causes them and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, like if you're interested in fire starters, you can just go to that, that yeah. area. It's funny because when I initially conceived the book, like I said, and it only had 50 cases when I first started out, and, you know, you see how that escalated. But um, <laughs> initially, I was going to put them just in chronological order. And then I started thinking to myself, you know, as I started researching the cases and writing about them, I was like, you know, these could fall into various categories. And there was a lot of overlap, obviously. So some yeah. of the some of the cases I was like, well, which section should I put it in? Because both this and that happened. But what I wanted to do, I said, I think it would be a better read if I kind of ramped up the manifestation, like if they got worse as the book went on. So I said, so it's more like a, like a fiction kind of thing where it's like building up to a crescendo. I said, I yeah. think it would be a better read like that. And I said, and I think it'll be a better way for people to find their particular case. Because when I first started writing them in chronological order, I was like, well, they're kind of all over the place. Like here's like a really minor one and here's like a super bad one. And you know, it just seemed like it didn't really, I don't know. It just seemed kind of disjointed. And I thought it would be instructive too, because people could see not only how far back in history reports of this type of phenomena are and how similar a lot of the accounts are even going back, you know, thousands of years, but they could also see the similarities between, you know, of the various manifestations, like why, do poltergeists drop stones in people's houses? Cause that happens a lot. Why do they scratch at the walls? You know, why is there kind of this set, this set of behaviors 
that most of them seem to adhere to. Like you don't really get ones doing like completely crazy random things. It's always one of these kind of set behaviors. And I thought that was really kind of interesting. And so I wanted to categorize them in that way so people could see, oh, here's ones where they all started fires and here's one where they made it rain inside. And, you know, here's one where stones fell on the house and stuff like that. And it was, it was so interesting to me how many of each type of case there was, it was actually pretty easy to categorize a lot of them. A few of them were, like I said, kind of sketchy and I wasn't really sure. And like the worst they got, I was like, well, I'm just going to put the worst ones like in the violent poltergeist. If it was poltergeist, they were like hitting people and pushing them downstairs and whatnot. So, um, So I said, so they'll just get worse as they go along, because that's how a lot of actual poltergeist outbreaks occur. They start with very minor things, you know, doors opening and closing and knocks on the walls and stuff like that. And then eventually ramp up to stuff flying around and sometimes people getting bitten and pushed and stuff like that. So I wanted the book to read as though it was like a poltergeist outbreak happening, I guess. Well, and there's a reason, you know, that the Tasmanian devil is the last story in Creepshow. You know, right. you want to get to the scariest or, you know, that they have a horror at 20,000 feet is the end of Twilight Zone, the movie. When you get to yeah. the end of something, you want the scariest thing. You want right. to leave, you know, and so as a reader, you know, it can be a, it can be a reference and it can be entertainment too. Because like now we'd read it as a reference. It could be like, well, I'd like to, I'd be I'd interested in this one and maybe some more research on it. Uh, but when you're, <laughs> when you're 13, you want to read it like it's a Stephen King story, but it's real. You know, that's the, yeah. the part that makes it uh, scary. So I assume you save the violent, you save the big finish for the end, like the poltergeist yes, that stab the, people the, while they're sleeping, little boy. Yeah, all the violent, <laughs> the violent and demonic ones are at the end. <laughs> the ones where people are flying around and, you know, having words appear on their skin and stuff like that. Those are, yeah, nice. so I saved those at the end. But that's that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted it to be a reference book, but I also wanted it to be an entertaining read if you were interested in that type of thing where you could just read it straight through. Or pick and choose. Yeah, yeah, and it's certainly all of those things. I, I mean, it's uh, just just a wonderful, like like you said, a, a reference guide, but it's also exciting. So, and and just the research that that took, I really admire that. Well, thank you very much. And have you used <laughs> have you used your research for any of you know? You're also uh, you know a fiction writer. Have you used some of that of what you've uh, researched into strange experiences? Has that helped? you create maybe more realistic and scary settings for your horror fiction. It probably has. Yeah. Um, Because I really like, cause it's weird because I kind of compartmentalize the two things. I think my horror fiction kind of comes from a totally different place than my paranormal nonfiction for some reason, but there is some crossover. Um, I haven't actually written much fiction in a while because I've been writing so much nonfiction and working on the podcast and things like that. So But really, I mean, the most recent thing I'm writing fiction wise, um, I definitely did utilize some of the things that I came across when I was researching some of the cases in in terms of just kind of telekinetic ability and things like that. So I'm kind of hoping that it will make the fiction better by grounding it more in reality and making it seem like it could really happen, which hopefully will make it scarier, but we'll see how it comes out. <laughs> when you say that the horror fiction comes from a separate place, um, well, what kind of place is that? <laughs> the deep, dark, horrible black place. But yeah, I don't know. It's like, it, it's kind of hard to explain. I kind of have, I don't know, like I kind of have this these sort of two halves of my brain, I guess. I mean, I know everyone has two halves of their brain, but metaphorically. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Oh my God. But yeah. So, so it's almost kind of like, I have this really, really Spock like, uh, rational sort of thing. And that's kind of what I tap into. It's the bangs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's what I tap into when I write my nonfiction. When I write my fiction, I kind of go into subconscious mode. Like I use um, nightmares a lot, like nightmares that I've had as a jumping off point. And I usually, when I write fiction, I mean, when I write my nonfiction, you know, I'm very present and I'm like, you know, up with my research and everything like that. When I write my fiction, I almost kind of go into not a trance really, but I try to get to a place where I'm not thinking about what I'm writing. 
And, uh, you know, where I just, just kind of like put, feeling it. Yeah. Where I just kind of put words on the page. I'm like, I'll fix it later if it sucks. You know what I mean? It's that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, and I actually got that idea from Stephen King because before that I was trying to write fiction like I write my nonfiction, like I was outlining everything and doing all these big, long character things. And it just wasn't working for me. I'd never finished anything. It sounded really rote and mechanical. And then I read uh, Stephen King's book on writing. And he's like, man, he's like, I just, he's like, I just think of an idea and then just run with it. I don't like (laughs) outline anything. And I was like, maybe I should try that. And I'm like, Hey, it works. You know what I mean? It's, it works better when you don't think about it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) at least for me. And that, cause I was just wondering, cause when you think about the different, you know, the conflicts of fiction, you know, and yeah. when you're talking about the nonfiction, the, the, even though it'd be a nonfiction story, um, the conflict be man versus su- or human versus supernatural or whatever. And right. so when you're thinking about your horror, is it, you know, primal horror? Is it supernatural horror? Is it body horror? Like, I, that's what I was just trying to think about when you come about the things that scare you. Are the things that scare you bumps in the night or is it serial killers or what scares you? You know, what's really strange. And uh, Tom and I talk about this a lot. Cause like I said, I'm a huge horror fan. Now, if I am watching a horror movie, even though I'm very skeptical about ghosts and demons and stuff like that, if a horror movie is going to scare me, it's going to be about that. It's going to be like a ghost story or something. And it's funny because the movies that scare him are things that are realistic, things that could really happen. Things like, you know, torture porn type, you know, Wolf Creek, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. He's like, is this serial killers? They're real. And I was like, I know they're real and they're scary from an academic standpoint, I guess. But when I see movies about them, I'm just like, meh. It's, it doesn't scare me. I don't know <laughs> why. And that's like, oh, I, I, Hannibal, you eat people. How boring. Uh, yeah, whatever. How gauche. <laughs> right? And it's like, and yeah, I- Yeah, fava beans, whatever. <laughs> I did love Silence of the Lambs, I gotta say. Honestly, this <laughs> honestly, the scariest movies I've ever seen are David Lynch movies. For some reason, David Lynch movies <laughs> give me the heebie jeebies. I love him though. I love all his movies. But seriously, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, mm. those are like two of the creepiest movies I've ever seen. I had nightmares about those for weeks. And I don't know how he does it. I'm just like, it's very but I like really ambiguous. Um, ambiguous horror where they don't really show much. You're not really sure if there's a ghost or if someone's just crazy. And then I, you know, I like really unsettling kind of like stuff the turn of the, the screw. Yeah. The that kind of thing. Ones, yeah. yeah. Like haunting of Hill house. Um, you know, the movie they made of that in 1963 is one of my favorite horror movies. And oh, yeah. you know, yeah, stuff where you're like really not sure what's going on. Like I love The Shining. I love Roman Polanski's movies like Repulsion and uh, The Tenant and stuff like that. Because you're not really everything's ambiguous. You're not sure. It's like is someone just messing with him? Is he crazy? Is it haunted? And they don't really tell you. And I have to say that I, you know, I'm mostly an old school kind of horror chick. You know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so a lot of my favorite horror movies are from that era. But I have to say, I was like, well, I don't want to be like one of those crotchety old people. It's just like, I only like old movies. These new movies, they're these right. stupid millennials. Blah, blah, blah. All those computer graphics. Right. It's like watching get, a cartoon. Get a, right. Get off my lawn. I didn't want to be like that. So I said, well, a few months ago, because I write a blog, too, called Goddess of Hellfire that's more horror based. And I said, you know, I'm going to start reviewing some newer movies, but I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of time. So it's like, I don't want to sit around watching a bunch of, a bunch of stupid movies. So I go online and I'm like, okay, what are really good horror movies that have come out like in the last 10 years, you know? And then, so I go on Netflix and I look through them and there are a really lot of awesome horror movies come out that are kind of throwbacks to the old and I like gore. I mean, it doesn't scare me, but I enjoy watching it. Um, a good special you know, effect like, is, you know, great. You know, <laughs> right. it's, always it's like, you know, the joy I, forever. Right. It's like, and I love that kind of stuff. Like I, I was a big uh, Lucio Fulci fan back in the day. Like I love all the zombie movies with mm-hmm. all the eyeballs popping out. I love that stuff, <laughs> but it's not, it doesn't scare me though. It's not scary. It's entertaining and it's fun, but it's not scary. Like I said, if something's going to scare me, it's going to be something. And like I said, some newer ones I saw that, Oh, there's this great one. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it came out in 2015 or 2016 called they look like people. Have you seen that? Oh no, I haven't no. seen it. Look like oh, people. it's awesome. It's it's actually about it there's no supernatural in it. It's actually about a guy who has schizophrenia and the suspense of it is wondering 
like is is seeing things through his eyes because he sees he thinks people are demons and he thinks people are being uh, taken over by demons and that he has to do something about it. So a lot of the sus- yeah, so a lot of the suspense comes from seeing things the way he sees them and also wondering what's going to happen to his friends when he thinks that they've been taken over by demons and there's a lot of really like unsettling kind of imagery in it but it's really really good. But yeah, I liked that a lot. That one and um I am the pretty thing that lives in the house, which was a ghost story that came out a couple years ago. That's very, that very Shirley Jackson. It's almost, it's almost kind of like, yeah, it's, it's almost, it's almost kind of like, and I saw another reviewer say this and I'm like, yeah, that's a perfect description. They said, if David Lynch had directed a remake of the haunting of Hill house, they're like, it would be like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm because as soon as I saw that in a review, I was like, that's the movie for me right there. So (laughs) we'll we'll definitely have to check that out. And the thing is, we'll also have the link to uh, Goddess of Horror. Um, yeah, Goddess of Hellfire is my Goddess favorite. of Hellfire, I'm sorry. Goddess of Hellfire. 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 Yes. 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 <laughs> uh, but we will, we will be linking to that in the show notes um, that you guys can find. And so uh, make sure you check that out. And also, Jenny, where can people find out more about you? Where can they find out more about your books and your blog and your podcasts? Oh my gosh, I'm everywhere. Okay, so my main hub site is just www.jennyashford.com and that has links to pretty much everything. Um, All my books are available on Amazon. I have an author page on there. Um, All of the paranormal nonfiction is available in print, ebook, and audiobook. Um, The horror fiction is available in print and ebook. I haven't got around to doing audio of my horror fiction yet, although I hope to eventually and um it's it's sunday so you got a whole week to do it i know right (laughs) (laughs) i know god they take so long but um yeah so and also myself and tom ross who i wrote mammoth mountain poltergeist with uh we have a weekly podcast called 13 o'clock and we kind of it's 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 very informal it's very fun we swear a lot uh, we kind of just randomly pick weird topics. We do true crime. We do paranormal cases. We just do crazy stuff. Like we did one on like creepy spy stuff, like number stations and that Ooh. kind of thing. We did one I about like number stations. Yeah. So we did one about um, Nazis and the occult and the, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, it comes out every Tuesday. We have a YouTube channel, which is called 13 O'Clock Podcast. And uh, you can also get it on WordPress, uh, 13 O'Clock Podcast. And I think I think it's on iTunes. I hope. <laughs> we were... <laughs> well, we just, we just switched networks, and I'm, like, not sure if the new RSS feed is is up to date because I'm really um, not tech savvy about that kind of thing. So I try to do all this stuff myself, and I'm not sure if anyone's getting it, but... You know what I mean? Well, it's well, pretty easy to find. certainly link to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's easy to find. Well, sounds good. But thank you for sharing your time and story with us today, Jenny. And then we're going to have to talk to you more in the future because it sounds like, like not only we have Poltergeist, we, I'm sure we have a lot of horror movies and in, paranormal inspirations and things to talk about later. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Thank you so much. Aw, thank you. For this week's song, we decided to go into one of the dozens of poltergeist stories that Jenny writes about in The Unseen Hand. It's the famous story of the Bell Witch, made into a film as an American haunting and deserving of an episode in its own right, because there's much more than meets the initial eye to this story. We take the poem Queen of the Haunted Dell from M.V. Ingram's work Authenticated History of the Bell Witch from 1894. Now, Ingram knew the Bell family and compiled as much information as he could about it, including their own journals, and he released them after the last of the family who this happened to passed away. He was a journalist and not a poet, but he was inspired to add a poem to his book, and we use that as a basis for lyrics for this episode's track, Queen of the Haunted Dell. Midwoodland Bowers, Grassy Dell, by an enchanted murmuring stream. Twelve pretty blue eyed Betsy Bell, sweetly grinned love's young dream. Life was like a magic spell that guides a laughing stream. Sunbeams glimmering on her bell, kissed by Luna's 
for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Ooh, 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 ooh. Don't you dare think that we forgot about our Patreon community. That's right. That's the community that keeps See You on the Other Side podcast in business with their awesome, wonderful donations. And we'd like to do a special shout out to Dr. Ned. Dr. Ned is at the level of patronship where He gets a shout out in every single episode. So once again, thank you very much for your support, Dr. Ned. And thank you to all our awesome Patreons who make this show possible. If you're interested in joining the See You on the Other Side and Sunspot Patreon community, please visit othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And we'll see you on the other side. (laughs) We'll all do it at the same time. Okay. at the same time. (laughs) One. One. Two, Two, three. three. There we go. (laughs) Okay, that's how we do it.